0: Having that consulting winemaker, kind of your own in-house technical lead to Mm -hmm. say, all right, we're going to add the sulfur down at O'Neill Vintners. We're going to truck this wine up to top it off. And we're going to make sure that Top It Off knows that this truck is is on its way. So making that coordination, truck gets there, Top It Off knows what to do, right? They're going to push your wine out into the tank. Maybe they're going to have a nitrogen feed going into your tanker truck while they're pumping out so that that wine stays very inert, right? This is something I might do if I'm going to be purchasing a Sauvignon Blanc, right? Sauvignon mm. Blanc with, you know, super aromatics that, that are beautiful. It's easy to just kill those in a truck ride. Hey guys, this is Sidi Patel
1: your host for the Wine, Whiskey and Weed Show. I have a very special guest here, You know, Brian Avilia, and he really is gonna talk about the business resilience needed for 2023 for your wine business, right? There's lot, lots going on in the wine business, especially the climate change, You know, uh, new laws are popping up. So how you are adapting, how you're taking everything positively and how you're embracing that culture in your company is what we're gonna talk about. So Brian, thanks for uh, joining me here.
0: Thanks for having me on, Sid. Uh, it's a pleasure. So essentially, you know, I I think everybody, a lot of people read the Silicon Valley Bank report last year, um, where, you know, essentially people are drinking better stuff, but Mm -hmm. less wine. Um, And we've got, uh, you know, obviously some increased uh, pressure on all of our producers, thanks to climate change, right? Uh, You know, California is running out of water, except for right now, we're getting it all back in a couple of weeks. (laughs) Uh, and then the East Coast has too much water, right? And too much water brings a lot more pests. So there's just so many stressors on producers these days. You know, obviously when we don't have enough water, we end up with a little bit of fire. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, we got smoke taint. We got to work on. So there's just so many things. It's just keeping uh, producers on their toes, right? And true, not pull them off.
1: Great, great. I want to to really throw in some practical, uh, you know, insights here, uh, which people can take and write some notes and apply in their businesses, right? So let's go case, uh, throw some cases, like real examples on how, you know, uh, one can handle.
0: Um, A a guy out in the East Coast, uh, Matthew Finneau. He's uh, a winemaker out there uh, in Virginia. And so Virginia's got too much rain, right? What happens when we get a lot of rain? Let's say right before we harvest. That water goes into the soil, it goes up through the roots and it dilutes the, the you know, the fruit sugars and, and everything else in there, right? But it's diluting that that potential alcohol. And so, you know, we did essentially a trial on chaptalization, right? A, 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 you know, a process that France uses. And so, you know, so that's an East Coast problem. They got too much water, Four Feathers Winery. Lots of fires, right? Uh, Four Feathers Winery has got, um, you know, essentially, you know, they're, they're evaluating different ways to remove smoke tank using cross flow, using different types of techniques to pull smoke out of wine, right? You got to sell that wine. If you're sitting on a 10,000 gallon tank of Cabernet, um, you got to do something with it. So evaluating different processes and picking the best one at a small scale, mm-hmm. you know, with your winemaking team. And then once you find something that works, you write that work order, that goes out to the seller. Now you've got a you know a better treated tank of wine. Now, and a lot of these technologies are still developing. So those, those are getting better. So this is one of the reasons why we want we always want to make sure that we've got a good connection with the universities. The universities are doing basic research. So they're actually trying to figure out, all right, we talk about cross flow all the time, right? Uh, to remove, whether it's brettane or smoke taint, they're the ones looking at the new polymers in these types of uh, equipment, different types of equipment, different process, new chemistries. So we need to make sure that we're keeping that, that we're, we're getting those new practices. And that's where applied research comes in because we try this practice when we do this work at the winery level, not in academia anymore. We got to test it. To make sure that it still makes our wine taste good the way we Mm -hmm. want it and then that's going to make the cut into a practice that we actually use if we keep using this practice right it eventually becomes a best practice another one here we've got uh dow right uh dow dow vineyards Mm -hmm. you know they're out in paso robles they're making killer cabernet out there and, you know, there's a lot that goes into making that Cabernet. If you got too much sun, you're going to end up with a bunch of bleached grapes. So really kind of a multifold approach to how you're managing your soil, right, to keep those vines healthy. Uh, Daniel described it as, you know, if you took somebody that was out of shape versus somebody that was in great physical fitness and dropped them in a desert, which one's going to survive? The fit one. And that's his approach to the vines. So soil health, making those vines uh, really healthy from the get-go, but then also coming in, you know, on some of those really hot days and adding that shade netting. So experimenting with the level of shade, right? Is another parameter that's important. Put too much shade on, right? It's called darkness. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so finding that right percentage, that's another research trial, right? finding how to add that uh, to to manage your soil so that it's healthy. That's another research trial. So it's these little, little incremental improvements, right? We're not talking about like, wow, we have this perfect drug you've injected and everything's great after that. That, that doesn't mm-hmm. work, you know? So it's these small incremental changes uh, that you get by really working with other people. Uh, you know, one of the, one of, the, one of his best advisors was reaching out to uh, Inardis, right? Uh, mm-hmm. his, he's got a friend over there at Inartis um, and, and working with that group to just help bring uh, some new ideas in. And long story short, it, it's really helped them out. Yokeo Winery, uh, you know, they're up there in Mendocino, lots of fires. And, uh, you know, so early fires uh, on white grapes, We started talking about, you know, one of their big concerns was, wow, how are we gonna manage smoke and white grapes? Well, we find that the smoke is really going just skin deep, right? Maybe just on the outside of the skin, maybe barely in. So then now this is going to um, create different decisions for, well, how much maceration do we want? Do we want to crush and then press? or do we want to just go whole cluster to press, squeeze that juice out and get those skins away right away. Well, we don't really know if it's worth that yield loss to go whole cluster to press versus crushing that those grapes and then pumping it into the press, right? Is it worth it? We don't know. It's got to pencil out otherwise our business turns into a hobby. So that's where applied research comes in. Also is that you bring this research idea in you can check now, does the wine smell different if you're using process mm-hmm. A that you've always always been using and process B, the one that we're implementing to reduce smoke taint impact. Mm-hmm. And then we can also now take a look at the numbers. What is our yield like? Are we getting enough yield to make that loss worth it? Uh, Adrienne Ubaldi, you know, she's... Um, She's now, I think, an operations manager over at Markham Vineyards in Napa. She's the mm-hmm. one that reached out um, to the Napa RCD because mm-hmm. they wanted to learn more about how do we save water, uh, how do we use soil moisture probes problem. Uh, and so uh, Dr. Miguel Garcia went out there. has been working with them, and next thing you know, they're 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 doing a trial on one vineyard block to see if this makes sense, right? Because now you've got these soil moisture probes that you've got to drill into the ground, Mm -hmm. drop them in, you've got some wires, you might have some that are on Wi-Fi or something like that. So there's some effort. Is that effort worth it? Right? These are the types of calculations. Applied research is really where you start to say, is all this nerdy science stuff Mm going to make me more money? Is it going to save me money? Is it going to take away my pain? And the short answer is, is, You don't know until you try it. Mm -hmm.
1: What what about Brian? You know, bulk wine shipments and color changes, or any 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 challenges you can think about related to like logistics and bulk wine. You know that comes to mind.
0: Shopping for bulk wine, right? If you've got a brand, you've got uh, you've got a flavor profile that you're looking for as as a you know a a vintner, right? Let's say a negotiant style vintner. You know, and what I mean by negotiation style vendor, I mean that, you don't buy the grapes. You're you're purchasing bulk wine from other trusted vendors. Maybe not, maybe vendors you've never met before too, right? But you're bringing a wine into your cellar that you didn't necessarily ferment and age and do all that prep work for. So you've got kind of, uh, you know, an an unknown entity. You've got to be able to taste it, assess its health. Right. Because you don't want to go out and buy a wine that uh, you know got some microbial issues that might create some other issues. So, um, you know, having a process for taking a wine, measuring its, its health, I would say, by by doing, you know, uh, wine chemistry measurement, but also taking a hard look at the microbiology. I really like plating because I can see what's actually growing in there. Scorpions are, are can work too, uh, very nicely. And those are going to give you a history of of that wine and why why is somebody selling you that wine? Mm. You know, a lot of people don't necessarily go like, you know, I just made the most amazing wine. I'm going to sell it, you know. there It is out there for sure. So, you know, buying bulk wine is almost kind of like, you know, thrift store shopping. Mm -hmm. There's some great deals out there. There's some really... Uh, there's some really cool stuff, really neat wines out there, but you really don't know what you get, right? You got a desk full of these bottles on your desk with little plastic screw tops. Maybe got a little Mm -hmm. tape on them. And so you start pouring those wines and they got to pass the flavor test, right?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Tasting all these wines, you're writing it down, making sure that this flavor profile works for your brand. You're doing the blends. And then, you know, once you kind of lock in on a flavor profile, a com- you know, a, a, a wine that you like, next it's time to figure out, okay, well, what is the health of this wine? You know, maybe it's a little bit sweet and it's sitting over there in refrigeration. So you mm. get to taste, it tastes lovely, but you have that wine shipped over. Maybe it's not stored at the right temperature. You end up with a, you know, back, uh, let's say a Britannomyces bloom and the way, you know, the wine can change. And Mm -hmm. so assessing its risk level is very important when you're buying bulk wines, right? Mm -hmm. I wanna know if I'm a bulk wine buyer, does my wine have Britannomyces? And if, if so, is it still live or active, right? It's not that I don't or won't buy a wine that has a presence of Britannomyces, but that tells me that I have to do something as soon as this wine comes into the winery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've got to maybe more than just take it, pump it into the tank, make sure it's gassed. I've got to make sure that I take this wine, put it into the tank and then do a filtration order on it fairly quickly right after. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, assessing that wine's health beforehand is a big deal because you want that same wine that you tasted when you went bulk wine shopping, let's say with Ciotti or Turrentine or Mancuso or h &H, and I wanna make sure that that's the same wine in the tank that I was tasting on that day. So taking that chemical analysis from that wine you tasted, send that to the lab and testing the wine that you get in your bulk tanker, making sure those match, that's kind of like matching fingerprints, Mm -hmm. that's a big deal, right? And so that's going to keep people out of a lot of hot water. I think,
1: uh, but then there are a lot of external factors, you know, uh, that affect uh, the change in bulk wine. Well, you know, so how how are the contracts handled? You know, what happens and how are wineries dealing with, uh, you know, some of the bulk wine issues that pop up as as the wine arrives?
0: Assuming, you know, you've got the right wines and you've done all that work up front to make sure that you've got the Mm -hmm. right stuff. You know, at that point, then you're going to have to rely on kind of your winemaker's toolbox. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of little things that you can do to touch up a wine. And, you know, I would say nudge that flavor in a specific direction, right? Understood. We're not going to want to do like an extreme Ricky Lake makeover on, mm-hmm. you know, a wine that you purchased, because otherwise it probably means you purchased the wrong wine or, maybe it got a really good deal, <laughs> right? We try to make it into something it's not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So you know, the first thing is, is making sure you get a wine that's close to your wine style. And then you know the next thing is, is, is you've got these tools, right? And some of these tools can be, you know, purple 8,000, mm-hmm. add a little bit of color. Maybe you've got uh, some color you can add to the wine if it doesn't have enough. You've got acid additions, You can de-acidify, you know, you can can add a little touch, you know, you can do touch-ups of oak. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of little things you can do to fix things. To remove color, you know, color, removing color is not as easy without stripping a lot. Mm -hmm. So there are things like carbon, and there's things that are like nanoproteins and certain findings that you can pull out some brown characteristics. Like for example, if you had too much oxidation, you might use PVPP or some casein that might bond up some of those brown smaller molecules and settle those out so that you can freshen up that color. So the point is, the point is, is that there's no one-size-fits-all tool for mm. those things. If you understand, you know, if you can see or taste the flavor that's offending, uh, right? Then it's always a good idea to confirm that by analysis. Or if you're just looking at it and it looks a little bit brown, then you you might uh, have a pretty good idea of, of where you need to go chemically to treat the wine, right? To mm-hmm. get it back into the brand style that you want.
1: What are the good qualification you know, in the resume that you think uh, is a good fit for a bulk wine buyer. For example, you know, an independent wine merchant versus uh, someone buying from ShopRite or Total Wine is completely different, as you know, right? They go by math, by reports, by Nielsen data, or many other things are there. Uh, They are not like an expert wine buyer. They don't have to be. They have to be a financial guy more,
0: for example.
1: So in that context, you know, uh, who makes a good bulk wine buyer?
0: So basically, you know, just having all your ducks in a row, knowing Mm -hmm. what price points you can afford, um, being quick about the transaction, knowing, you know, providing instruction on how you want the the tanker filled. Right. So having all those details worked out so that you have a very clean and uh, fast transaction, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily about speed, but it's really about planning. Right. The better you plan that transaction, the the faster things are going to go, you know, like understanding what size tankers you're going to need. You know, are you going to need the that tanker gassed, you know, with CO2 on arrival? What kind of sulfur dioxide? Uh, You know, so having all those instructions laid out for that facility winemaker, because that facility winemaker is not going to make your wine for you, you know, because there's too much liability right? Whether you go to O'Neill or Yokeo or some other bulk wine producer, they're going to ask you what you want. And what you don't want to say is, oh, just do whatever you do or do whatever. What do you recommend? Because then you're saying, please shoulder my liability with me, right?
1: Hmm.
0: If you give me a bad recommendation and my wine's turned out bad, I'm back to blaming you like, oh, you told me that I needed to add 35 parts. I probably should add 50. My wine is oxidized. That's your fault. Right. Well, those winemakers, depending on the winemaker, is going to just say, you need to tell me. Right. Mm. So it makes sense for that bulk wine buyer, especially if it's a business guy, to maybe hire a consulting winemaker, right, who can shoulder some of that liability and provide that professional opinion because maybe what they're doing in their winery, which is, Maintaining sulfur dioxide at 24 to 30 or 35 works for them in a storage condition. But if we're then going to purchase that winery at, let's say, you, you brought up O'Neill Vintners, we're if we're going to truck that from there to, let's say, Napa or somewhere else to bottle that wine, and it's got to go a long way. That that wine's sloshing around, it might need mm-hmm. 50 parts per million SO2. It might need 75. Make sure you know what your logistics are mm. and get insurance, right, between there. Uh, and just have uh, have those ducks in a row so that uh, you don't have to put that type of pressure on that winery. You know, so getting chemistries from that winery, uh, you know, m- knowing what you want, being very clear on, you know, the wine lots that you need and um, sending the right cooperage, coordinating with the production planner so that, uh, you don't want to just have a truck show up out of the blue because they're going to be planning, you know, sometimes a week in advance for trucks coming in and out uh, to 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 load out wine.
1: Super, so super.
0: Communication is a big deal. yeah. And then yeah. also like, you, you probably or you may not have you may be working with a custom bottling facility. So. Coordinating on that other end, let's say Mm -hmm. you're at top it off mobile bottling and you're going to you're going to truck that wine from O'Neill to top it off. If you go to top it off and say, what do you recommend? They're going to be upset, too. So having that consulting winemaker kind of your own in-house technical lead to Mm -hmm. say, all right, we're going to add the sulfur down at O'Neill Vintners. We're going to truck this wine up to top it off. And we're going to make sure that Top It Off knows that this truck is is on its way. So making that coordination, truck gets there, Top It Off knows what to do, right? They're going to push your wine out into the tank. Maybe they're going to have a nitrogen feed going into your tanker truck while they're pumping out so that that wine stays very inert, right? This is something I might do if I'm going to be purchasing a Sauvignon Blanc, right? Sauvignon Mm -hmm. Blanc with you know, super aromatics that, that are beautiful. It's easy to just kill those in a truck ride. You can end up with, uh, with that wine. If it's, if that tanker's not filled right, that wine can get, you know, gosh, four or five PPM of dissolved oxygen. And mm-hmm. there goes all those beautiful aromas that, you know, you were high-fiving about, uh, when you were shopping that bulk wine and blending it with your business partners. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get to the winery, and you go, "Gosh, this is not the same wine; it's dead." So that's you know making sure that uh, that whole process from the time you taste, going down to the where you're purchasing that wine, tasting that wine is the same, pulling samples, making sure the instructions are clear, getting that wine safely in transit with insurance uh, mm-hmm. to the next winery making sure that next winery is ready for you. And not only has you in their schedule to load out into a tank, but all the quality management aspects to getting there. Maybe it needs another SO2 dose. Maybe it needs some pad filtration and there's some solids. And Mm -hmm. so being there to assess that will keep that quality decline. That's the biggest thing. Once you get into bulk wine, that wine's not going to get any better on its own, right? Mm. but it can get worse
1: <laughs> very good brian any anything else uh that comes to mind
0: here's uh, another one with, with shy vineyards uh casey D. cesari uh was a winemaker you know very very creative winemaker um looking to try to figure out how to improve terroir in the vines how to bring in more native type fermentation this is a big winery right so in this case he's using non-saccharomyces yeast And what is that? What is a non-saccharomyces? Well, saccharomyces yeast is the one that eats the sugar and makes the alcohol, right? It keeps Mm -hmm. us in the wine business versus the juice business. But the non-saccharomyces yeast basically paves the way for the native saccharomyces in the juice. So this was initially developed by, you know, I think this particular product that they tried was from Laforte. but the, the the current dogma in the wine industry is to add SO2 a, a, into this crushed grapes. You got st- grapes coming out of the vineyard. There's my, uh, microbiology on them. You add sulfites, knocks out all the bacteria that's gonna give you some vinegar, right, VA. Um, and then we add our Saccharomyces yeast. And then next thing you know, we have a clean fermentation. The only, the the downside to some of that conventional fermentation is that you just get kind of more predictable, maybe simpler wines. And so as you start to look at more boutique wine production, you're doing more native type fermentations. Mm -hmm. And the beauty about native fermentations is that you can get a lot of complexity, right? You got a lot of different organisms eating sugar and creating other flavors uh, when it goes right, right? And so that's really interesting. You get more mouthfeel. You get more complexity of aromas and just more of those nuances that people want to pay more money for. But but that takes risk, right? Because the downside is that your wine could end up smelling like nail polish, which is not good. So one of the ways that they brought in this this, uh, non-saccharomyces yeast was to add the non-saccharomyces in the very beginning, kind of let it. Outcompete all those bacteria that are hungry, right? Cause you have this other very robust strain. It doesn't have a lot of alcohol tolerance, but it's eating some of that, the, the sugars, it's creating some cool nuance aromas. And then the Saccharomyces is just kind of there building up. There's not much there. There's a, you know, there's a very small amount of native Saccharomyces and it takes a while to build up. If you let it do it on its own, you're rolling the dice, mm-hmm. but with that non-sac, it really allows now the native yeast to come in and make an interesting wine with without the that sulfites. So that was an interesting application with the, the non-sac yeast. That was a little, that was novel. Other interesting things, uh, we did something with TJ Rogers with drones in the vineyard, mm-hmm. right? So we had with drones are, are coming in where this particular vintner uh, out in the Santa Cruz Mountains he's got a very deep slope. And Mm -hmm. so essentially um, what they were experimenting with was tanker drones. So instead of having this poor guy schlep this backpack full of, uh, whether it's a spray or uh, various applications that need to be done by hand, now they're putting this into a, a drone, a tanker drone, so that it can be flown in a specific flight pattern up and down these vineyards to, to specifically spray clusters, right? Take, you know, saving literally, uh, days of labor. Interesting. Um, and so that's, that technology is still being developed there. One of the biggest things that, I think is you know a really important aspect is, is soil health. I would have to say that really changing this convention for from conventional farming to regenerative farming, right? Tablas Creek, right, it, been around forever, organic farmers, they make great wines, but really starting to embrace more regenerative ideas, meaning we're gonna, you know, experimenting with different ways to farm, dry farming uh, reg- regular farming and and allowing more organic matter into the vineyard uh, tilling less and even incorporating grazing right and so learning that working with nature is you know maybe on the short term it, it can be tough because it disturbs the might disturb the balance of your vineyard a little bit mm-hmm. um, but adding regenerative uh, farming concepts, into the mix is uh, long-term really beneficial, not only just for the planet and the environment, but for the wines. So, you know, if you're creating, like we were talking about Dow wines earlier, you know, really just building your soil health, taking, you know, terroir expression to another level
1: mm-hmm. and
0: experimenting with this, right? We've had a hundred years of kind of petrochem farming mm-hmm. and we're learning that this, this really isn't the way we want to go, right? It's it, it's hurting the planet. It's hurting a lot of things, and so coming back around to working with nature is something that we're a little bit unsure of, right? In you know, in the way of making sure that we're profitable, mm. and so isolating different vineyards and really changing that paradigm, adding sheep into the vineyard, adding um, you know less tillage, uh, those types of things are really, people are finding as they experiment with those, that those are, you know, they're not only are they, they're saving money, but they're making better wines And Mm. so I think this is going to be, this already is the wave of the future. I mean, you could just go on to LinkedIn and you can see regenerative all over the place, right? So, you know, and this is really where you're going to really tug at the heartstrings of the Gen Zs and the millennials, Mm -hmm. meaning like, all right, this company is not only working with the land, they're making killer wines, right? Mm -hmm. I can, this is the type of company that's gonna support the way I wanna live in the future. Those are important things, breaking down those individual vineyard blocks and trying new things, right? A little less tillage, a little different uh, cover crop, bringing the biodiversity back in. That biodiversity itself is, uh, is resilience, right? Maybe not in the first couple of years, right? Because it takes a while for nature to find that balance. Mm-hmm. But after, you know, I've been told by like Greg Pennyroyal, it takes about three years for those, those changes to really start to get the, the effects you want to see. Fantastic! Like said, it's really about, you know, you understand your business pain, you create a project around it, See if you can recruit some other members to experiment with that with you so that you can expand your learning, figure out where the best practices are, implement those best practices. You know, just keep implementing those at a small scale and increasing the things that work, decrease the things that don't work. You know, one of the things that uh, I I haven't really mentioned yet is we've got the Vintners Academy, which is really about training the workforce, entry Mm -hmm. level technical people in in the cellar and in the vineyard. So the beauty about having the guild and the academy within the same organization is that as these new practices turn into best practices, these Mm -hmm. best practices are then able to be incorporated into the academy so that we can shorten the time it takes for these new ideas to Mm -hmm. come into the cellar so that the people doing the work get it. And they Hmm. speak that language and they don't look at you funny when when you ask them to do this stuff in the cellar. And that's super important, especially Hmm. when you see a lot of of wineries are looking down a lot of climate change type issues. Uh, There's a lot of climate action 2030, climate action 2040, you name it, right? There's a lot of initiatives stemming from Paris Accord, all the way down to state and county level mandate, Mm -hmm. right? That are going to make businesses do, you know, and comply with that type of work. So that's like seven years, right? That's not a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So that knowledge from innovation to, you know, establishing a best practice to getting it into these new recruits, that's huge shortening that cycle is going to lead to a smarter, more engaged workforce that feels like, you know, you guys are connected. You know, and so yeah. that's that's what we're trying to do.